Hello, I'm Emily Bellet, founder of Vestpod and author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich, and you're listening to The Wallet. Every week, we give you the best tips, guidance, and a good dose of inspiration and motivation to manage your money better. In 2017, Farah Kabir launched Hanks, the sexual wellness brand with women in mind with her childhood friend Sarah. Farah is passionate about creating a platform that empowers women to take control of their sexual wellness and pleasure without shame or embarrassment. Prior to Hanks, Farah spent six years working at Goldman Sachs. In this episode, we talk about leaving a secure banking job to launch Hanks, the challenges of raising money and how to manage your personal finances as a founder. I asked Farah if it is easier to talk about sex or money, and she shares her top tips launching a business. I loved our chat and I hope you will too. Sarah is just super inspiring and a really cool founder and friend. We all at different stages in our financial lives. Some of us are trying to save for a rainy day or our first home and others are investing and building our retirement funds. But the journey is never linear and we could all do with a little help. Moneybox is an award-winning app helping over 800,000 people reach their goals and build wealth with confidence. Moneybox runs up your spare change and allows you to choose how and where you want to invest and save. You can sign up in minutes with as little as one pound. Download the Moneybox app today or go to moneybox.com slash for more information. As always with investing, your capital is at risk. Remember that we are not certified financial advisors. Information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Actually, before selling homes, you actually worked in banking. Um, that's a big change. <laughs> Can you talk about that? I sold my soul to the devil. Um, <laughs> yes, I was uh, working in an investment bank for just under seven years. I was at Goldman Sachs. Um, and I actually thoroughly enjoyed my time. I had such great teams, such great managers, and I learned so much there. Um, it's a real fast-paced environment, um, and everything needed to be done yesterday. That terms, so <laughs> you're always working under pressure, but you're around super smart, intelligent people that that constantly give you that that challenge to grow as well. So, do you think that helped you raising your your first round um, and, and how much money have you raised for Hanks? Yeah, absolutely. I do think having a, a, a name like Goldman Sachs probably helped when it comes to, to raising and seeing the profile. Um, and hopefully that gives a stamp of approval that I know what to do with money or at least how, how to handle um, a balance sheet and a cash flow. Um, and in terms of raising, so we have raised just over £1.8 million pounds, uh, since we launched, so over the last three to four years, um, which feels like a hell of a lot of money, but actually in the startup space, it's pennies when you compare it to lots of other VC-backed startups. So what's, uh, what's the, the journey now? Um, are you trying to raise more money to, to grow the business, grow the team, the, the tech? I mean, Always raising money. Well, I think that's the one thing I realised. I thought leaving banking meant that I didn't have to <laughs> have to deal with numbers or spreadsheets ever again but um here I am um full-time raising it is a full-time job um and we're a super small team as well um I you know Sarah and myself we both grew up in Yorkshire so I think uh we value the pennies and the pounds which means we've been very good at preserving cash and, and being lean but um you know to to run a company like ours that 
it requires a lot of marketing and brand spend means that we we are raising capital what feels like always uh, I think I, I'm having a momentary break but that will soon kick off again uh, so yeah we are likely to go for a fundraising round later this year and what what would you say were the main challenges or are the main challenges for you personally raising money yeah you know I I went into investment raising naive, to be honest. I, I thought it would be relatively straightforward. You pitch a product, you show your idea, you show your, your KPIs and hey, presto, you get the money. How wrong was I? Um, I have pitched to hundreds and hundreds of investors, all the way from angels to early stage institutions, VCs, etc. And I've had an, a hell of a lot of no's. Um, and, and it's It really is character building. Um, you know, it's obviously not nice either getting rejected, but there's something about that reject rejection that when you are so confident in your product and your brand that it gives you that fire in your belly to, to prove those people wrong and it just keeps you going. You know, it's it's not nice to, to get rejection, but it's part and parcel of the fundraising process, um, sadly. So, yeah. So how do you do you talk about condoms, lubricants and contraceptive pills to um, to investors who I guess are going to be mostly male investors? Yeah, I mean, I've become a bit desensitized to the term condoms, lubricants and anything that uh, may appear slightly taboo. I mean, initially when Sarah and myself had this idea and we didn't even have the product, we were going uh, to investors or anyone that would listen to us with this idea um, and we did get laughed out the door a little bit. Um, you know, two young girls think that they can tackle a male dominated industry. There's only one big player in the market. How are they going to do that? Um, but I do think things, uh, attitudes have changed. People are more aware and have opened up to sexual wellness, femtech as a whole, period care, etc. Um, so the conversations are more open and you don't get as many squirmish faces or awkwardness. Um, but sadly, you're right, a big proportion of the investment um, network are male. So we are naturally going to get some men who just don't understand it, who who don't believe that it's a woman's job, it's a man's job, and, you know, reject the idea straight up. But then they're not the investors for us. And we move on and we move to the next and and we don't let it get to us. And in the so in the in the process, uh Because you have a small team, I mean, if raising money is a full-time job, is it basically what you're focusing on? I mean, how do you sort of organize your fundraising versus running the operations of the business? Yeah, so I'm really lucky to work with such a flexible and hardworking team. Yeah. You know, we would not be where we are um, without our team members um, and having a co-founder. We know a few and a great. We are so lucky to have them. We need to keep keep on to them, keep them tight in the team. Um So, you know, I'm really lucky in that regard. I think, you know, we've done four investment rounds now, all all angel rounds predominantly. A couple of smaller funds have come in, but predominantly angel rounds. And every time we've done that round, we've learned a little more. And one thing we've learned is it is a full-time job and you do need to dedicate 100% of your time into that. Um, so a good proportion of my role is either spend investment raising or sales so either way it's bringing in the money through different channels um and I think each time we've raised we've learned that little you know what are the things we can do to make that a bit more seamless um 
where are there gaps in the company where we might need additional resource um so i do think it's it's not there's not been a a manual that we've followed since day one it's been learning as we go along and um and really openly communicating being super honest as a team like you know there are days when uh, in previous investment rounds where i do get beaten down and you know you do feel pants <laughs> you know you you've, you've, you don't feel great when someone's rejecting you constantly especially on a baby that you love and you know and that you've grown and you you know it's going to be amazing um and I think sharing that with the team being really honest is really good because they're such great pick-me-ups right um they remind you why you're doing what you're doing they're also there to support you so I think communication is key during during investment raises for sure And and you as a, I mean as a business owner, owner money is quite central to the conversation. So we talked about fundraising, but also like within the business, like managing cash flow, business models. What are some of the like toughest money conversations you've you've had um, at Hanks? Yeah, cash is king, um, and I feel like the bad guy in in the company. Often I'm the one saying you can't spend. Goldman Sachs. <laughs> yeah, I've got the Goldman Sachs hat on and. And Sarah's got the marketing merchandising hat on where she wants caps and everything Hank's banded. And <laughs> I think um, there's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's that balancing act. I think it is challenging when you're in the numbers day to day, whether that's through investment raising or doing, you know, the monthly accounts uh, and managing the cash flow. You really see how much money you've got in the company uh, and what your outgoing is going to be. And it's only when you're that close to the numbers does it really impact you. So reiterating that to the team can often appear like I am doom and gloom. But I think it's important to have those conversations early on if we foresee a big outgoing expense or, you know, we need to commit to stock. Um, it's about managing that and knowing what are the upcoming spends and where we need to rein it in a little. Um, and, and sadly, often those conversations are with the marketing team. And marketing is one of our biggest spends, and rightly so, because we're a brand. But that's often where we have a lever to uh, turn the taps off a little and and pause. And then there's the revenue side. So when you you go and, and negotiate with like huge clients, and and I'm thinking major retailers, how do you also approach these these conversations? Um, I think with sales, it's very much relationship building, and I think. I've learned that retail sales is probably quite similar to investment raising in a way. You can't just turn up when you need funds. You kind of need to nurture that relationship um, like you would, you know, you've worked in finance as well, like you would a client. You don't just, you know, you've got to build that rapport um, and keep that going. So I think with retailers, the, the best relationships are often the ones where we have kept them in the loop with the business, whether that involves retail or not. So, you know, our products, our, our lubricants and condoms are on the, the shelf uh, in Boots, Superdrug, Sainsbury's, etc. But we update them about the business. Like, what are we doing with our community and our brand? What are we seeing um, from our customers? What do they want? We share with them about MPD as well, so product development. So the buyers really feel in the loop and they're also excited to bring something new to the shelf in quite a stale, archaic category. Um, so I think that, It definitely helps in negotiating having that rapport um it makes it a bit easier um retailers drive a hard bargain they are margin driven 
and they will have their targets and you know because we are a challenger brand in quite a stale category with a couple of big players yeah. Yeah. um we're at the mercy of the retailers a little but again i do think it comes down to your buyer relationship um, if they can't budge on margins, are there anything else they can do to support you, whether that's with online marketing or banners or a reduction in, in marketing spend in retail? Um, so there are other levers you can pull in the absence of that pure margin play that you'd expect. So when starting Hanks, this was sort of a new, um, I mean, I guess, quite a, a learning curve for you to, to understand, you know, this type of retail business, you know, you do a bit of direct-to-consumer also. Um, so how did you initially structure the business? Because, of course, you want to go to Boots, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> what is the story to actually get to Boots? <laughs> so um, in true classic, naive, Farrakhavir style, we thought we could do everything at once, and there were just the two of us when we started. Um, so we always wanted to own the consumer relationship, because our very first product was driven off 2,000 yep. women that we surveyed, right? Before Sarah and myself quit our day jobs and invested our life savings into condoms, we needed to know that there was a market and a purpose and that people would buy a product. And it was these 2,000 women that basically said, yes, we want something that's kind to your body, you know, free of nasty chemicals, something that isn't garishly packaged. Um, so with that in mind, like always think consumer centric we knew that when we launched the brand we needed to have a direct to consumer model where we could speak to our consumers and we could deliver to them and engage with them um but really to cut through such an archaic category you need to sit on shelf and the reality is our product is an impulse purchase people can buy online if they're if they're planned or if it's their only use of condoms but if someone is going on a date tonight and they're two hours away from their date, they're not going to come to the site and buy the product. They will go to their local Boots, yeah. Superdrug, etc. So it was super important. Um, so we were having conversations with them even before we officially launched the brand. We we would we would knock on as many doors as we, we could on LinkedIn and, and see who, who would listen. And, and honestly, it took us about 18 to 24 months to really get into Boots. Uh, so it was a long process. Uh, but again, just keeping them in the loop, communicating with them, not annoying them, but obviously, you know, periodically checking in and, and reminding <laughs> them of who you are um, helped. And I guess after that, it's, it's still keeping this relationship um, alive to make sure you, you stay there and you, and you have some, some sort of negotiating power a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, you need to keep that relationship going. Buyers come and go, but still having a consistent communication style that no matter who the buyers are, they're familiar. This is Hank's style. This is what they do is really important. Um, we do, you know, our negotiating power is always going to be limited in comparison to a much larger brand, regardless of which category you're in. But it, it's a two-way thing with buyers and, and brands. You have to think, what can you do to make their lives easier? It's not just a case of what we want and we want to be top shelf and we want this many facings. Well, they're not going to give you that unless they get something in return. And in the absence of being able to give them a lot of cash and marketing spend, we can help them in other ways, yeah. whether that's consumer insights or building a presentation for their team that's going to make it easier for them to do their job. It's that sort of thinking that helps 
maintain that relationship, help us negotiate in other ways if it's not margin. Yeah, so that's, I mean, being really creative and, 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 and selling your, your brand, I guess. And that's what you've been building. And, and I love when you have photos of, you know, yourself at Boots with your, your own products. How does it feel? It feels amazing, honestly. Yeah. Um, at, the at the moment, I am up north uh, with my family and visiting and just going to the local Boots. Sainsbury's there's a little loop I do there's the boots the Sainsbury's and the super dog all within one you sort of check. <laughs> shopping park and it's such a nice feeling I still even now there are pinch me moments where I'm like my god the blood sweat and tears and finally we can see it on shelf so you know really proud but equally we would not have gotten to where we are today without the help and support of our team family friends the people around us that have got us here today um, I'd love to talk about your own relationship with, with money. But maybe before, can you tell me what's, you know, the big vision for Hanks and where, where do you see yourself in the future? Yeah, ultimately, we want Hanks to be accessible at any age for anyone. Um, right now, we're addressing women because there's an imbalance and we've not been spoken to in the sexual wellness space. Um, but a lot of our buyers are men still. I think where I'd like to see Hanks is a household name regardless of age, culture, religion, race, uh, for it to be a space that is accessible no matter which point uh, in your life you are, whether you come to us for content and advice or for physical products, we want to be that go-to, almost like your best mate's big sister who's a little bit more street smart and with it. I can picture that. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so now if we, if we talk about more, you know, personal finance and sex I mean for you is it easier to talk about sex or to talk about money that is a great question <laughs> I mean I come from a Muslim Bangladeshi background so yeah. sex is very taboo like very very taboo so I've I've got some of that ingrained in me um I've become very intensive to talking about sex now when it comes to running hanks and definitely within the investment space um I'm very desensitized to it I mean you know there were Hanks condoms in my car, like, when I went in the other day. That's not to say that I was going up tanky-panky, but if, I, if that was me three or four years ago, I'd be really uncomfortable. So how did you overcome that at the, at the beginning when you set up Hanks, and especially telling, I guess, your family and your friends that you were building the biggest condom brand? They were shocked. Uh, I, I had told my mum throughout the process that I was thinking of doing this with Sarah and what we were thinking and, and feeling. And, and my mum was very much on board. Um, she's a real advocate uh, of women's health in ethnic minorities and has, has faced challenges herself. So um, she was very supportive, but I have two older brothers and uh, I come from quite an entrepreneurial family. Like my two brothers and my sister are all very successful in their own right and I'm very proud of them. Uh, and so they've always been like, when I was working in finance, like, what's your next investment? Like, there's a property around the corner or have you thought about this? And I was always happy just staying, you know, staying in my lane and, and doing my job and was quite content. But and every Christmas this usually happens because we're all together. And it was one Christmas I said, so what, you know, what are you thinking? Like, uh, and I said, actually, I've, I've got this idea. And I told them about Hanks and, um, yeah, chaos ensued. Like, my brothers were like, <laughs> what on earth? It was already taboo even to say the, you know, to say the word condom. Um, <clears throat> and then I remember my brother saying to me, you know, out of love, uh, 
you know, please stay in your job because it's quite a big risk. And, and you know, we did, you know, you're, you're going to lose a lot here. It's huge. And I brought it up with him at the weekend, actually. I said, I remember that so well. And I remember sitting with you on the sofa and I remember saying to you, I'm so glad you said that because you've given me the fire in my belly and I'm going to prove you wrong. And no. this time next year when we're on the sofa, we'll have launched tanks. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm really lucky. I have, you know, my family are super supportive despite any sort of cultural connotations or, you know, religious barriers that there may be within the wider community. Um, and it's the best move I could have made. I'm so glad I made the jump. That's amazing. Um, and what about talking about money? So personally talking, like I said, my family are very entrepreneurial. So it's something that comes up most days, whether it's through a, an investment and all my siblings have businesses. So there's always well, talk of something or a challenge or something that's going on or a, or an investment opportunity. Um, there's quite a lot of loud voices. So I tend to be the quietest in my family anyway. <laughs> so I tend to just listen and absorb. And often because it goes over my head, they're all super smart. <laughs> and I'm still learning. Um, but it's interesting because within finance, when I had a job, um, you know, the company that I worked for, you weren't allowed to talk about your salary. No. It was explicit. You you were not allowed to talk with colleagues. So it was always felt quite secretive. Um, and I think there's still a stigma attached to that. I think there's still a bit of taboo about what you talk about with your friends and your family. You know, even people being as open as saying what they get paid annually. Um, it still feels a bit uncomfortable. And I think for me personally, maybe it's more around... I don't want to make anyone else feel uncomfortable, you know. Yeah. Am I get you know, if it's more or if it's less or do people then judge me if I, you know, I'm wearing something nice or it it is uncomfortable and I'm I'm sure you see this with a lot of people you have on your show as well. Yeah. And and as um as a business owner maybe there's it's quite tricky also especially when you come maybe from from banking and you have to of course you raise money for your business. You said you invested your your savings in Hanks. How do you decide, you know, when to pay yourself, how to pay yourself and still make sure you, you don't forget about that in, in the process because you're so passionate about the business. Um, so make sure you, you have some, some, some safety, some security. Yeah, I think, look, it's not, it's not easy setting up a startup and all these stories you read about people overnight raising millions and, you know, it, making it look easy. It's really not. And I wish people would share the, the scars and, and, you know, the ups and the, the downs as well as the ups. Um, I was really lucky, right? I, I had managed, you know, I had a good job. I'd managed to build some savings and I was young. I still like to think I'm young, but I was younger then. You are. Where, <laughs> where I didn't have kids or was my, you know, I didn't have any dependence. The, the worst that could happen at that point if we failed was that I go back to my day job. So I had nothing to lose. And I, and I always advise this with anyone that asks about, you know, jumping ship. It needs to be a calculated risk. Like you need to have a buffer for the rainy day that may, that may be when you're in, you know, when you need help in your business or when you're financially strapped. So um, I'd say that's the caveat I'd put. Like I was in a lucky position to do that. Um, now, the reality is when we launched Hanks, we didn't pay ourselves for a very long time. It was me and Sarah for a very long time. Um, and it was only sort of as we've started to build out the team and even then the team are really, you know, we're a really lean company. So yeah. we've been around for, for four years odd. So there's not many of us around, 
but equally our plates are getting bigger so you know we've got more huge retailers but we've still got the same number of hours in a day and at some point we need to live and breathe and eat so um you know we it got to a point where we were able to pay ourselves but you really have to assess you know uh can your business afford to do that and can you afford to do that mentally in your well-being right you need to sustain you know if you're a solo founder you need to be able to look after yourself Uh, and I think only you or you know myself would know what is the fair balance between what the business needs financially and what I can remunerate myself with so it's a it's it's not a one-size-fits-all I'd say and what do you do with your own finances do you manage to do you manage to save a little bit or do you like sort of plan for something financially I know it's very hard when you're a founder because again like you know there's so much of what you do based on on your company and the future of your company it's really it's really tough and and especially when you live in London yeah you just can't like I it's really it's really tough to save but I I think also with savings it when people think of savings they think it needs to be hundreds of pounds or thousands of pounds. It really doesn't. It can literally be £25, like, so long as you're putting something away. Um, I absolutely love your newsletters because they give me a source of life. Like, actually, they make me feel really terrible about my life because I'm like, these are all the things I should have done and haven't done yet. Um, and I think I've got some of them still on my to-do list just to read an action from, like, my life ago. Um, I think I got as far as last year's tax return one where it says April the 5th is ahead I'm like crap that's next week I should <laughs> um saving you know as little as you can like I think that's important you know I try to if I can but it's really tough being a founder and being in London um I think sort of pre-founder days I <clears throat> was investing in funds so uh Hargreaves Lansdowne using a platform like that using making the most of your um ISA so it's tax-free if you can and you know you don't need to people think with trading that you need to be some whiz and have lots of money yes to an extent you know there's fees and stuff if you're buying like the odd trade here or there but um you can put them into funds where there is someone that manages all of that within certain industries or, or balances that portfolio so um there's definitely easy ways of doing it which I try and top up um but I think the other thing I would add, and this isn't to do with money, but kind of is, being a founder, you're so full on that you don't get time to really relax. Yeah. And the last sort of year, I've decided that actually any downtime I get, I want to invest in me. If that means a really good holiday or, you know, <clears throat> a nice massage or something, I, I will do that in the hope that in future I can save a little bit more. But right now I need to save myself, <laughs> like my my own person, human. So, um yeah, I hope that makes sense. How, I mean, I was on a, on a chat with a lot of entrepreneurs the other day and, and a founder who actually has kids was asking, you know, how do I, do I, I talk about money with my investors. How do you have these conversations if, if you had them with your, with your investors? It is a tough one. I wouldn't have it with all my investors. And I think this is one of the challenges and not say that I'd be selective about who I speak to. That's not what wow. I mean, but it really depends on your cap table. Like we have quite a lot of investors and we need to be, um mindful of what information we share so that it's even across all shareholders um it's probably something we discuss at the board um because they could be involved in the decision making process 
I mean, the way I see it is ultimately a business cannot run without its resources. Resources being the team, co-founders. Often people say that, you know, a company doesn't have a bloodline if the founder's not present or there, building and living and, and breathing that dream. Um, so I really do think it's a difficult one, but it comes down to like what is reasonable and fair, like what it is that that person needs in terms of their salary. If they're saying, I need 300k and they're in Monaco every six weeks or so then you know but equally if you're not making any sales you know there are too many levers for it to be a one-size-fits-all you really need to look at the position of the company the growth trajectory where are they headed any other headcount that they're bringing on board or any other big spends um but I do think most investors if not the board should be understanding that a founder or senior, you know, team members need to be able to live because, you know, putting founders aside, if you don't hire the right talent because of, because you don't have the money, they'll just go elsewhere, right? And you'll regret not paying them what you should have had they come to you. And I, I just think there is, people need to be mindful of that. Like the value of a person coming into yeah. your team needs to reflect um, you know, you need to remunerate them fairly and hopefully the right investors will see that that's the right thing to do to grow the business so long as it's reasonable. And how do you have this um, this conversation with your co-founder maybe or like the first initial conversation or with with your employees? Um, honestly, I, I don't think we've been in a tricky position yet. Um, I do feel like when we've hired, we've made the right decisions at the right level. Um, I think with me and Sarah, I'm really lucky. She's one of my best friends, right? We, uh, for those that don't know, we grew up together. So from the age of like 15 <laughs> in the village next to each other. So we know each other inside out. We're like sisters. And the reason why we have worked together so well, regard, you know, regardless of salary or expense or whatever we're talking about now, is that we're very honest with each other. Um, if anyone's feeling uncomfortable about something we won't leave it longer than an hour or two to talk yeah. about that and hash it out. So I think with, you know, when it comes down to this sort of conversation, it's the same thing. We talk it out, um, we see what's reasonable and we've got some great advisors around us um, who can help, you know, mediate between us if there ever was a situation where we weren't agreeing with salary, for example. Amazing. Um, Farad, you have one last tip maybe for anyone listening uh, who wants to build a business or you know, wants to work on the project they really like? Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. I always say this, go with your gut. It's got your best interest at heart. That's something that came from my mum. And the older I get, the more I really feel it. And I wish I followed it more when I was younger. <laughs> um, so definitely do that. I think also take a calculated risk. Like, you know, definitely go for whatever business idea you have but understand the market. Is anyone else doing it? Like, how much is it going to cost you? You know, how much cash outlay are you going to need? Can you afford to leave your job to do this? And really, really calculating all of that. Um, so I say take the jump, but make it calculated. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wallet. Every other week, I answer your questions about money on the show. To get involved, send your questions and comments via hotline to podcast at vespot.com. If you send us a voice note, you may even get to hear your voice on the next hotline episode. 
Be sure to share this show with your friends and subscribe on your favorite platform. Please also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, but it helps more people find our show. Join us again next Thursday for another episode of The Wallet. We will discuss what to do when you're feeling stuck about money.